Amen. Well, this morning we continue our sermon series through TULIP, also known as the Doctrines of Grace. This is a a Reformed biblical understanding of soteriology, which is understanding of our salvation, of how um, a sinful humanity can be saved from their sins. And so last two weeks, two weeks ago, we studied the T, which stands for total depravity, the fact that every single one of us has been affected by sin. In fact, every aspect of our being has been affected by sin, and we are left spiritually dead. That there's nothing we can do to ever spiritually resuscitate ourselves, just as like uh, someone who's dead would never call 911, right? Remember us uh, focusing on that a couple of weeks ago. Last week we took a look at the U, which is unconditional election, which means this, that just like a dead person will never call 911, they need someone outside of themselves to act upon them to work to rescue them. That's what the U stands for, is unconditional election. That God, according to his good pleasure and will, has decided to choose to save some of us rebellious sinners that rightly deserve hell. It's not because God ever foresees anything good in us, whether it be our faith or good works or anything such as that. But rather, according to God's good pleasure and will, he has chosen to save some. How does he save us? Well, that's what the L is all about today. The doctrine of limited atonement. We're going to cover a lot of passages of scripture today, but in order to get started, we're going to begin with the scripture readings printed in your bulletin this morning, beginning in John chapter 10 and skipping to John chapter 17. Hear God's word. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, in John chapter 17, we have a recording of Jesus' high priestly prayer. This would have been the last prayer that Jesus would have prayed, likelihood, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, but prior to him being arrested, condemned, and crucified. Here's what Jesus said. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now there are a couple of verses I also want to include in the bulletin, but they accidentally got left out. So they're verses 8 and 9. Jesus continues praying, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Here's the key. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come and make us receptive to your word today. Help your Holy Spirit to attend the reading, the teaching, the preaching of your word. So that our souls might be convinced, convicted, converted 
and conformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One question. It is a crucial question. It is a question that every human being needs to answer and should answer. This is a question you do not want to get wrong. The question is this. What did Christ's death accomplish? What did Christ's death accomplish? Now for those of us that are believers and followers with Jesus Christ, we may say on very quickly, reactively say, oh, I know the answer to that question very easily. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. The reality is there are four different answers some people give to that question. The first response some people give is this. They believe that Christ's death accomplished nothing. There are some that would say, Jesus was just another crazy Jew that lived in the first century, convinced he was the Messiah. He tried to revolutionize the Roman government. He was tried of treason, convicted of treason, died. He's dead and he remained in the ground. No big deal. There are some people, that is their response to the question, what did Christ's death accomplish? Nothing. Some of you may struggle with that type of an answer. Or you may know someone who does. I'm not going to spend a, a great amount of time on this response today, but here's my response to you. For those of you that wrestle with this answer, or you believe this answer rather, I would say this. You need to do yourself a favor and investigate the evidence. There is overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 30 days. The scriptures say that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. In addition to that, there is an historian by the name of Josephus who was a Jew who was paid by the Roman government to write a history about the Roman Empire. And Josephus himself, a Jew who did not believe in Jesus, it was paid by the dime of the Roman Empire, records the fact that there were many who said they saw Jesus back from the dead. So there is more historical evidence and support for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the fact that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. There is more historical support and evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the fact that Washington crossed the Delaware. And so for any of you that wrestle with the answer, well, Christ's death accomplished nothing, I would say to you very humbly, friend, the burden of proof is on you to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A second answer some people give to the question, what did Christ's death accomplish, is an answer called universalism. And boy, I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody gave me this response when I'm sharing the gospel with them. Or I wish I had a nickel for every time this view was 
articulated at a funeral, I would be a very wealthy man. What is universalism? Universalism is this belief. That Christ died to save every single human being on the face of the earth without distinction. This view says everyone's saved regardless of what you believe about God, regardless of what you believe about Jesus, regardless of whether or not you ever repent of your sins. In the end, we're all going to be there. I remember visiting a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the preacher preached on John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He read the passage, he prayed, and then he said this. He said, you know what? This passage of Scripture almost contradicts what I believe. That in the end, no matter what you believe, we're all going to be there. I had to bite my tongue. I wanted to say, hey, dummy, it does contradict what you believe. I think it's interesting. At the end of that service, they offered communion. I did not partake because I didn't feel comfortable taking communion at a church where God did not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what they did to me? They all looked at me like I was, had horns growing out of my head, like I was the devil himself. And I thought to myself, well, if the end, we're all going to be there anyway. Does it matter if I take communion or not? It shouldn't. What's wrong with this view of universalism? Here's the problem with it. It's not biblical. <laughs> That's the big problem with it. You see, the Bible is very clear that there is, there is a hell. It's really, really hot. It lasts for eternity, and a whole lot of people are going there. For those of you that are note-takers, I've given you several passages of Scripture that support the fact that universalism is not true, that it's not biblical. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, some of us like Sunday fun days. We like going fishing on the lake, and that's great to do if, if, if it's after, after worship. God doesn't have a problem with that. You enjoy your family and your, your friends. But notice, this is a lake of fire, not pleasurable. Matthew 13 says this, The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Matthew 25 says this, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, talking about Jesus on Judgment Day, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What is he saying? There's a distinction. Sheep go to be with Jesus, goats go to hell. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on left. What's the problem with universalism? It's not biblical. It is not biblical. Another possible answer that some give to the, the question, the answer is a question, what did Christ's death accomplish, is something called hypothetical universalism. Hypothetical universalism. Stick with me, it's going to be a little bit heady, but we're going to bring it home for you, okay? Hypothetical universalism believes this, that Christ's death made salvation possible for everyone on the face of the earth, but it didn't actually secure salvation for anyone in particular. Okay? This is what I was raised to believe growing up, that it was hypothetical universalism. I never heard that term, I never heard that phrase till later on in my life. 
But basically, this is what I was taught growing up. That here's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He made salvation possible for every single human being on the face of the planet. But he didn't actually accomplish it or secure salvation for anyone in particular. And they would point to verses like 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 that says this. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, and it would make sense in this, this view because you say, hey, see, Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. But here's a problem. If you take 1 John 2, 2 on its face value, then really what it supports is universalism. But we know the Bible's not contradictory. So we know that the Bible clearly teaches there's a heaven, there's a hell. So when the Bible says that Jesus came to save the whole world, what does it mean? It doesn't mean every single human being on the face of the earth, but it means this. Jews and Gentiles. Without distinction. Now some of you might sit there and you think, What's the big deal about that? Is that all, preacher? Just Jews and Gentiles? Why should that get me excited this morning? Because how many of us sitting here right now are Gentiles? I am. How about you? That was the key that the church early, the early church wrestled with, was that the gospel had come not just for the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. You see, we all want to quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Every Christian believes that. that if you repent and believe in Jesus, yes, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. But these doctrines of grace begin to answer how anyone could ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. These doctrines of grace teach how anyone could ever repent of their sins. And so what the world signifies in John 3.16 is this, that God is gathering his church from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that the only appropriate response to the question What did Christ's death accomplish is articulated in the doctrine of limited atonement. Some will call call it particularism, which means that Christ's death accomplished something for only particular people, for God's elect. That's what we affirmed in our faith together this morning from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I want to define for you the doctrine of limited atonement. So this morning we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to define it. This doctrine, we're going to defend it, and then we're going to talk about the difference it's going to make in our life. So here is the definition of limited atonement. The purpose of Christ's death was for Jesus to take the place of God's elect so that God's justice would be fully satisfied for them and their redemption perfectly secured. What did Christ's death accomplish? Two things. First, God's, Christ's death satisfied God's justice fully. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death on the cross was Jesus taking 
our place as a substitutionary atonement for our sins, that the, Jesus would pay the death penalty we owed God for our sins in, in our place. He satisfied God's justice fully. But that's, that's the first thing he did. The second thing he did is he perfectly secured our redemption. He paid the ransom price in full to free us from slavery to sin. And who did Jesus make this ransom payment for? God's elect. God's elect. How many of you remember the illustration I used last week about the dog pound and the, and the dogs with rabies and the billionaire? Okay, a few of you. Okay, I want to appreciate those of you that emailed me or called me this week and said, hey, preacher, that, that illustration was actually helpful. So let me go back and, and walk you through that illustration again and then take it a step further with today's doctrine of limited atonement. Remember I said that for some, for some of us, we have a hard time wrestling with unconditional election because we think that God is a billionaire and he could go into any dog pound and he could pay and rescue all of the dogs. Now, I'm an animal lover. You're an animal lover. And so we have a problem with the thought of God not rescuing some cute little fuzzy bunnies, gerbils, or dogs. Remember I said that's not a picture of redemption at all. A much more accurate picture of redemption is that Jesus is the billionaire that goes into a dog pound full of dogs where every single dog has rabies. And not only do they have rabies, but they have, they have bitten and maimed little children. And when... The Jesus billionaire walks into the dog pound. They snarl and hiss and snap at Jesus. And you think, this billionaire would be crazy to pay and buy any of these dogs and rescue them, particularly because he has children at his home. But that's precisely what God does. He comes and he sees us totally depraved, and he chooses to save Now here is what limited atonement teaches us. Jesus doesn't go into the dog pound of total depravity, throw a billion dollars down on the the table and say, well, they're all mine now. Let's see if they find their way home to me. That's what universalism teaches. That Jesus pays for everybody. But he doesn't take any of them home with him. Some, some will kind of wander their way there and enjoy his company. And others, they will live the rest of their existence not really knowing that he had paid for them. Well, that's stupid and that's just dumb, right? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. More importantly, most importantly, the Bible doesn't teach that. Here's what hypothetical universalism would teach is that Jesus... The billionaire goes to the dog pound, he lays the money on the table, and he says, you know what, dog keeper, for any of those dogs that decide someday that they want to come home with me, you just give me a call, and I'll come get them. What do we know about those dogs? They're dogs with rabies. None of them would ever desire on their own to go be at home with him. But here's what the Bible teaches us. That Jesus comes into the dog pound of total depravity. And he looks and he says, I want that one. I want that one. 
I want that one. And so Jesus comes and he pays the price. And he says, Jennifer Klein, you're coming home with me. James Cook, you're coming home with me. Nancy Kincaid, you're coming home with me. And Jesus actually pays for the redemption of those that are called by his name. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful because it's biblical. And so you say, Pastor Tanner, where do you see this in Scripture? Oh, let me count the ways. The first place we see that this is biblical and scriptural is in Jesus' own name. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says this about Jesus. Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. Notice in the infancy narratives of Jesus, notice every Christmas we are taught this wonderful doctrine of limited atonement, whether we want to think about it or not, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Not every single person on the face of the earth, but his people from their sins. Now, are you saying, Tanner, that Jesus' atonement was not powerful enough to save everyone? No, 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 that's not what we're saying at all. Jesus' atoning sacrifice was sufficient to save every single human being on the face of the earth. But the, the Bible teaches that it was only efficacious to save the elect. Why? Because we see a picture of God's justice in those who are condemned. And we see a picture of God's grace and mercy in those who are saved by his sovereign grace. But we see this doctrine of limited atonement not only defended in Jesus' name, but in Jesus' mission. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many means a whole lot. A big number that I can't count, you can't count, gather from every tribe, nation, and tongue, but it does not mean every single person. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28 says the same thing. When Jesus is offering the Lord's Supper before he's crucified, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not say it's poured out for everyone. It's poured out for many. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we see Jesus' mission for the church. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is very important for us to remember as we head into a presidential election. Regardless of who you vote for, here's what I know is going to happen in the ads. They're going to try to convince you that though Jesus could walk on water, the candidate you're getting ready to vote for can ice skate on water. In the middle of Florida, in the middle of the summer. They're going to try to convince you that the candidate you vote for is like Jesus 2.0. But they're not. And as much as I love the United States of America, I love this country. I'm grateful to live here. Remember, Jesus didn't come to create the United States of America. 
Jesus came to purchase his church. And Jesus' church is going to be made up of elect from Israel, the United States of America, Germany, Norway, Brazil, you name it. Jesus is about building his church. That's what he's about. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, you, you have taken some verses about Jesus and you've kind of you've twisted them and contorted them to, to support your position. Okay, well then, I don't think I have, but let's take a look at Jesus' teaching itself. Look at John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Remember the earlier passage we read about Jesus sitting on Judgment Day, separating the sheep from the goats? Did Jesus die for goats? No. Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. In other words, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is the beginning of God's work of redemption, of gathering his elect, gathering his church from the nations. God began small and went out from there. But remember God's promise to to Abraham is that he would be a blessing to many nations. God's plan from the beginning was the same as it is today. That God was going to purchase his church, which is the elect gathered from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But ultimately God's covenant people is his church. And that's what we need to remember. And then this doctrine is supported in John chapter 10, verses 26 and 28. Jesus says, but you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. Next week we're going to take a look at this a little bit more in depth with the eye and tulip, which is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is going to explain the question. You're going to answer the question, well, how can anyone ever come to faith in Christ? If we're spiritually dead, it's all about who God chooses. It's all about whom Christ is dying for this particular group of people. Then why in the world should I ever come to Christ? What would make me ever want to come to Christ? Well, next week's sermon is going to answer that question. It's all about God's irresistible grace. That God, those whom God has chosen, those whom God has redeemed and atoned for their sins, he will draw them to himself. What Christ begins, he will finish. What God has promised he will fulfill it's what jesus says in john chapter 10 verse 26 is the reason some don't believe you're not one of my sheep this is what john calvin wrestled with for years in geneva he wondered basically this question it'll be tanner's explanation of it how in the world can i preach my guts out not only Sunday after Sunday, but for, for Calvin, day after day, week after week, and some appear unmoved. And then he wrestled with the doctrines of grace. And he said, oh, it makes sense. When you're spiritually dead, you're not elected by God. Christ's atoning sacrifice wasn't applied to you and the Holy Spirit's not drawing you at this time? No wonder you won't respond. But what kept 
confident to preach God's word faithfully in the face of no response was this. That those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That he knew what Christ begins, he will finish. John 10, 28 says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. You see, Jesus taught the doctrine of limited atonement. In fact, he prayed it. This is powerful. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, in verse verse 9, Jesus says this, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. That's what Jesus is saying right before he's arrested and crucified. He goes, Father, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm not praying for every single human being on the face of the earth right now. Do you know who I'm praying for? I'm praying for those whom you've given me. I'm praying for the elect. So how do we know that this is a biblical doctrine? Look at Jesus' name. Look at his mission. Look at his teaching. Look how Jesus prayed. Jesus came with a specific purpose, that his sacrificial sacrifice, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins would purchase the salvation of the elect, satisfying God's justice. Okay. Whew, that was a whirlwind of doctrine and scriptures. So what? What difference does it make? Let me count the ways. The first difference this doctrine makes is this. Know your role in salvation. Friends, you are saved by grace. Not by your grunt effort. From start to finish, salvation is a gift of God. Not by works lest any one of us should boast. One of my favorite pictures of Bill Belichick, the, the head coach of the New England Patriots, is a, a picture of him on the sidelines yelling at all of his defensive backs that have been trying to make these big plays in a playoff game. And he's yelling at every single one of them. And he said, just do your job. Don't worry about that side of the field. I've asked you to take care of this part of the field. If the ball comes your way, knock it down or intercept it. If the ball doesn't come your way, then don't worry about it. Just do your job. Friends, there are a lot of people trying to walk with Christ. And the reason why they're frowning, the reason why they're irritable, is that they're trying to do God's job. Friend, what makes us joyful Christians is understanding our role is to simply seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. There's nothing you can add to your salvation. But rather, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, I ask myself, is my life bearing fruit? Of repentance. The second difference this doctrine makes is just like we talked about last week joyful worship. I'm convinced that if we good old Presbyterians really believe this doctrine, then we should sing with more fervor and more joy than the Pentecostals down the street. Why? Because we know. We know. I'm saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I didn't add squat 
for my salvation. And let me say this. I have a lot of guys come to me all the time and say this. Hey, preacher, I worship God more when I'm in my deer stand, more when I'm out there fishing on the lake than I could ever worship him in church. Okay, let's talk about it. There's two aspects about God's relationship to you you need to understand. He's your creator, your redeemer. And here's what I'm going to give you. When you're out there in your deer stand and you're out there fishing, you're right. There's an aspect in which you look at the beauty of God's creation and be amazed at your creator. I'll give you that. But here's the problem if that's all you have in your worship of God. You can look at the lake all you want. You can look at the sunrise, the sunset, the moon and the stars, which I really enjoy um, looking at the stars. No matter how much you stare at a deer, here's something you'll never learn from that deer, that God is your redeemer. The only way we learn that God is our redeemer is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. It has to be told. It has to be spoken. You have to be informed that God has saved you in Christ and how he saved you. See, if all you have is just the deer stand and and the fishing pole, then you might believe universalism. If all you have is just your deer stand and your fishing pole, you might believe hypothetical universalism. Or you may come to the fact in your your skepticism that, that Christ's death accomplished nothing. But if you've got the word of God, you're going to know Jesus came to actually purchase salvation for his people. The only way we know God is our Redeemer is through the Word of God. And he deserves, he desires, and he demands to be worshipped every day, but particularly on Sunday. And here's the deal with that again. If you say you can worship God in the, in the deer stand and on the, the lake and at the beach and you don't need to come to worship, then here's what you're saying. You're saying that you're better at worshiping the Father than Jesus was. Well, how do you get that, preacher? Because Jesus was in the synagogue every Sabbath. And if there was ever a human the face of the earth that had perfected the worship of the Holy Father, I think it would have been Jesus. And yet, where was Jesus every Sabbath? In the synagogue, worshiping. So I'll give you the fact that you can learn a lot about God as creator by being in the deer stand at the beach on the lake. But you'll never know him in depth as your redeemer unless you're in his word. Another difference this doctrine makes is grateful obedience. Grateful obedience. When we understand that we're saved by God's work and not our work, then it changes the motivation for why we're trying to be a good Christian. Do you want to know the the, the burden that every minister and every elder feels? We fear that you would come to church and come to Sunday school and come to Bible studies, and we are fearful that the only message you ever hear is this, that you leave the church building thinking, well, I just got to be a better Christian. 
That's true in a sense that we all need to grow and we all need to become better in our walk with Christ and, and, and more obedient. I mean, that, that, I'm not going to argue with that. That's true for every single one of us in here. And no matter how long we walk with Christ, that's always going to be true. But what should change as a result of understanding the gospel is this. What motivates us to try to get closer to Christ is gratitude. We're not trying to earn his love. We're not trying to earn his favor. But we're grateful. We're grateful for the fact that we know that we were like that rabid dog that hurt, snarled at him, had hissed at him, that snapped at him, and yet he loved us enough to say, I want that one. And then the last difference it makes, it probably makes a lot of more differences than this, but the last one we'll take a look at today is assurance of salvation. That if Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save everyone, but it, it was efficacious to actually save those whom he chose. And in terms of your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, beside your name is a red stamp of ink. That's not ink at all. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, and it reads, Paid in full. As Charles Spurgeon said, Christ came into the world not to put men into a savable state, but to put them in a saved state. Why? Because the purpose of Christ's death was for Jesus to take the place of the elect so God's justice would be fully satisfied and their redemption would be perfectly secured. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is true and is accurate. Help us to chew on this thick, delicious meat of your word. And I pray that it would make a significant difference in our lives this week. May it stir our hearts with more joyful worship. May it stir us with a motivation of gratitude rather than guilt. Help it give us peace and assurance of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to God's word this week.